In 2008, U.S. Senator Barack Obama was elected to the presidency. For a lot of people, mostly Caucasian Americans, Obama's presidency was a symbol of a post-racial America. An America that has made it past the horrors of slavery and Jim Crow segregation and discrimination. To them, this generation was ushering in a new world. A world that was free from race. A world that was dreamed up 45 years previously by Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., culminating in the real-life ascendancy of a man of partial African descent to the highest office in the land. And this idea that our world is somehow different than the one Dr. King lived in, and we can mold Dr. King's message into anything that would be most comfortable to us, is very pervasive in today's society. For example, Steve Bannon, a Breitbart, known alt-right white nationalist and former Donald Trump advisor, had this to say about him. Quote, If you look at the policies of Donald Trump, anybody, Martin Luther King, would be proud of him. What he's done for the black and Hispanic community for jobs is the lowest unemployment in recorded history. You don't think Martin Luther King would be proud? Look at the unemployment rate we had five years ago. You don't think Martin Luther King would sit there and go, you're putting black men and women to work. Lowest unemployment rate in history and wages are starting to rise among the working class. And you're finally stopping the illegal alien labor force that's coming in to compete with them every day and destroying the schools and destroying the healthcare. Absolutely, end quote. How malleable does Dr. King have to be to be invoked by a known white supremacist in support of a white supremacist president. To take credit for an unemployment rate that started its downward trend during the Obama administration. And to celebrate an unemployment rate for black Americans that is still significantly higher than the unemployment rate for white Americans? Not so sure Dr. King would be on board with that. Immigration is a bit harder to nail down King's position on because undocumented immigration was not quite the hot-button issue in the 1960s that it is today. You'll be hard-pressed to find a quote where Dr. King addresses undocumented immigration directly. When I researched this for the series, I wasn't able to find one, and because King didn't address it, it's been easy for both sides of that issue to claim him. On one hand, he led his support to Mexican-American labor rights activist Cesar Chavez, who strongly opposed undocumented immigration until the mid-1970s, well after Dr. King's death. On the other hand, King was a believer in not following unjust laws. He did say in a letter from a Birmingham jail, quote, Injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. We are caught in an inescapable network of mutuality, tied in a single garment of destiny. Whatever affects one directly affects all indirectly. Never again can we afford to live with the narrow, provincial, outside agitator idea. Anyone who lives inside the United States can never be considered an outsider anywhere within its bounds." End quote. While it's not within the context of immigration, it does give us an idea of the big picture view Dr. King held. But the real irony about Bannon invoking Martin Luther King Jr. in support of Trump is this. In the same oft-quoted, I have a dream speech, Dr. King also said this, quote, There are those who are asking the devotees of civil rights 
When will you be satisfied? We can never be satisfied as long as the Negro is the victim of the unspeakable horrors of police brutality." End quote. If Trump's presidency had aligned with Dr. King's activism on a timeline, would he really embrace the living Dr. King? Or would he call him, quote, a son of a bitch, end quote, like another public figure who has campaigned against police brutality, Colin Kaepernick? I am your host, Jay Poole, and this is Potstirer Podcast. If you listen to part one of this two-part series, and if you haven't listened to that episode before you listen to this one, you might want to do that first. So if you listen to part one, you'll know why the commonly invoked image of Dr. King, the civil rights icon who had a dream of a colorblind America, is historically inaccurate. Just as the image many had of a post-racial America 11 years ago, as since then, hate crimes have increased. And we're not talking about the handful of hoaxes like what allegedly occurred in the Jesse Smollett case. I'm talking about the real hate crimes that happen more often than those who haven't confronted race in America care to acknowledge. The kinds that were averted when alleged white supremacist terrorist Christopher Hassan was arrested before he could execute mass murder and, in his words, quote, establish a white homeland, end quote. There is often a disconnect between perception and reality when it comes to race in America? Could it be that the reason why America has yet to embrace the real Dr. King or acknowledge the true history and legacy of racism in the United States that includes slavery, genocide, land theft, segregation, internment, discrimination, intimidation, riots, torture, lynching, rape, violence, is because as a country, we have never been forced to acknowledge what has really happened and still occurs to this day. I wanted to do this two-part series because it's important to be honest about our history. We have an idea as to how some of the most commonly held beliefs regarding Dr. King are either more complex as we previously understood them, or just straight up false. And here's the thing. This is not just a deficit of knowledge on behalf of white people and non-black people of color. It does exist among black Americans too. I had family members with direct involvement in the civil rights movement, but as my parents grew up in the North, and due to my dad's background in both civil rights and religion, I grew up knowing more about Malcolm X, the Nation of Islam, Elijah Muhammad, SNCC, and Kwame Ture, who was formerly Stokely Carmichael, than I did about Martin Luther King. I probably knew as much about Dr. King as most other people I grew up with. When I was coming up, I got my knowledge in school in the short paragraph in social studies class that covered the entirety of the civil rights movement that was pretty much, the civil rights movement was led by Martin Luther King Jr. He had a dream that everyone would be treated equal and judged on the content of their character, and then he died. I didn't learn about the real Dr. King until college, when I started learning more details about the civil rights movement in history and sociology courses, and it prompted me to continue researching on this era in American history. But otherwise, I would have thought of Dr. King as a soft, peaceful, kumbaya figure. But how did we come to believe these things to begin with? 
How is it that in the American consciousness, Martin Luther King Jr. went from being an extremely controversial pot stirrer to a celebrated lion of American history? The making of heroes is fascinating. It's sort of like how we talk about famous people when they die. When we make humans into heroes, we often gloss over some unsavory, unpopular, or uncomfortable aspects of the person's character and elevate other aspects that are more palatable. I find that process intriguing because it tells us more about those crafting these heroes than the heroes themselves. In the 1960s, Dr. King was a divisive figure. According to Gallup polls taken each year from 1963 through 1966, there was a split between respondents who looked at Dr. King favorably and those who looked at him unfavorably. And the split over those few years became more and more unfavorable to King. In 1963, right before his iconic I Have a Dream speech, King had a 41% favorable to 37% unfavorable rating. But by 1966, nearly twice as many respondents viewed him unfavorably than favorably. Only 33% viewed him favorably, while a whopping 63% of respondents viewed him unfavorably. Keep in mind, at this point, he had been critical of the Vietnam War, and he was beginning to focus more on issues inherent in capitalism, such as poverty and labor rights. What's really fascinating about this is, in each year's results from 1963 through 1966, more respondents strongly disliked him than strongly liked him. His highly unfavorable rating only went up over time to where by 1966, 44% of respondents viewed Dr. King as highly unfavorable. So in other words, the strength of dislike for Dr. King only went up over the course of time while he was alive and supporters were more lukewarm overall than his opponents. Part of creating these heroes in our imagination is crafting the world they lived in. And oftentimes, the universe that's created is just as fantastical as the hero. Take Lost Cause mythology, for example, the revisionist history of the Civil War that casts the South as the good guys in the War of Northern Aggression. In this narrative, the antebellum South is depicted as a place full of genteel and honorable white men and virtuous, pure white women, and slaves who are happy toiling for their masters and secure in knowing their place. Secession from the Union was to preserve their Southern way of life and to preserve states' rights. And this idyllic world was shattered by the North, who ripped apart the South and gave former slaves rights that were beneath their station. And while the Lost Cause narrative does not hold up to historical scrutiny, which I explore more in depth in a very early episode, episode three, it doesn't stop some Americans from embracing it wholeheartedly. Like the Annabelle South in the Civil War, Dr. King is mythologized by placing his life in a world that was rife with racism and prejudice. Segregation and discrimination were embraced, but through Dr. King's colorblind dream, Focus on the content of one's character and his commitment to nonviolence. He was able to change the world so that racism is largely a thing of the past. Related to this is this myth that white people who embraced racism in the 1950s and 60s were 
and are a product of their time. Quote, As I listened to President Johnson address a press conference on March 10, I heard him say there must not be any interference with peaceful demonstrations in Selma, Alabama. Who told him that the demonstrations would be peaceful? Martin Luther King? If the people of Selma and of Alabama, both Negro and white, were left alone, they would work out their differences to the satisfaction of all concerned. Outside agitators are imported to keep the pot boiling. End quote. This was a letter to the editor published in the Pensacola News Journal in 1965 from a veteran of the First World War living in Alabama. Another one. Quote, I was raised up on a farm in Calhoun County. We went to school and walked round trip six miles a day to get an education. Anyone that wanted an education, regardless of how far they had to walk, could go to their school, white or black. I do not have anything against the good colored people because they are black. They have the same right to work and go to school and live right as the citizens should and they have good schools. Every citizen is supposed to live and obey the same laws, but the Supreme Court, Johnson, Humphrey, also the Congress, are taking it on themselves to change the Constitution of the United States. What do they mean by civil rights? Some of the Negroes think the Civil Rights Bill gave them the right to break every law in the United States and mistreat innocent people. Martin Luther King has broken the laws of the land the good colored people should realize he is not doing it for them. These troublemakers want publicity. If Johnson and his bulldogs do not stop these demonstrations of mob violence, we will never have peace in the United States. End quote. In the same paper, there was another letter that stated, quote, When any group takes the stand to show defiance to federal, state, and local laws, as Martin Luther King and his marchers did in Selma, then they should be stopped at all costs. The time for talking has long passed. It is time for action if we are to have law and order. When you take around 600 people that will lay or sit down in a street and won't move when ordered to, then you must meet force with force. Martin Luther King has had his way far too long. Martin Luther King was given a prize for peace, but he has caused more trouble than the communist Viet Cong. I believe that we should have a stronger force of law enforcement officers and that they enforce the laws, both state and local, with a firm hand. If it takes using tear gas, billy clubs, or any other means to stop the mass of lawbreakers that are going from town to town, if this is not stopped now, we will soon have a communist state." End quote. Both letters were published in the Anniston Star in Anniston, Alabama in 1965. Here's an interesting one. Quote, I'm reacting to the issue of changing a quietly dignified monument in Helena's Hill Park, erected by the Daughters of the Confederacy to commemorate Confederate dead. Some have said it would be a hate symbol. Please reject this idiocy. The American South experienced the horrors of war and a vindictive reconstruction for simply exercising the constitutional right of peaceful secession. Most Montanans are capable of independent thought and action. They are not for sale. They can see that outside agitators 
are the real purveyors of hatred, end quote. This is a letter to the editor printed in the Montana Standard from a retired English teacher published back in 2015. And one last one from the Messenger Inquirer in Owensboro, Kentucky in 2014. Quote, The Pharisees assisted their Roman overlords by using propaganda to keep the people in subjection. The Jesse Jackson, Al Sharpton, wannabe ilk likewise use race-baiting propaganda to keep anyone who opposes them in line, end quote. Some things never change. In a poll conducted by the Washington Post in 2018, 58% of white respondents, as well as 54% of Latino respondents, stated the NFL protests where players were kneeling for the national anthem to protest police brutality were never appropriate, including 87% of white Republicans. Only 24% of white Democrats were opposed to kneeling, which is similar to the 22% of black respondents who opposed it. 69% of blacks say it was acceptable. And other forms of protest were also considered never appropriate, such as burning the U.S. flag or blocking cars on roads and highways. Now, according to a Harris poll conducted in October 1966, 85% of white respondents said that civil rights demonstrations hurt blacks more than they helped. And in another poll conducted that same year, 54% of white respondents said that they would not feel justified to march or protest if they were, quote, in the same position as Negroes, end quote. Shurjian. There was even conflict as to whether or not respondents believed clergy should participate in civil rights marches. According to a 1965 Gallup poll, 56% of respondents disapproved of clergy taking part in marches, while only a third of the sample approved. So white Americans disapproving of civil rights protests is nothing new and seems to be a constant across time and space. The thing to remember, though, is that protests were never meant to be comfortable. Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. was assassinated in 1968. 1968 was 51 years ago. Well, for many of us, this seems like a time long ago and far, far away. There are many in our society who lived during the time period of the Civil Rights Movement. It wasn't that long ago. I've shared stories in other episodes about my own parents experiencing the tail end of Jim Crow and living through the civil rights movement. My mom is in her late 60s, and if my dad were still living, he would be turning 70 this year. The baby boomer generation, who are now largely seniors, were between preteen to young adult age during the 1950s and 60s, while the older generations were well into adulthood. Dr. King accomplished so much during his lifetime. So it's a bit strange to think about the fact that when he was murdered, he hadn't even made it to the age of 40. We have an odd relationship with the generations who came before us. We tend to look back at the morality of our earlier generations as qualitatively different than ours. The society was different, worse somehow. The values of equality and acceptance are cultural, and it wasn't part of the culture then. But at the same time, there are people we want to admire. Whether it's historical figures we're taught to look up to, or our own ancestors, we truly want to think the best of them. 
Many of the founding fathers owned slaves, but they weren't so bad because some, like Thomas Jefferson, wrestled with the idea of slavery. Uncle Bob, who doesn't want Latinos living in his neighborhood, is from a different generation where there just weren't a lot of people around of different races and ethnicities. And 90-year-old Nana, who clutches her purse and crosses the street when a black man walks in her direction, she's not really racist. She's just not used to how things are now. But that's the thing. Our world isn't that much different than the world of yesteryear. While there has been some positive steps, there have also been steps backwards. White supremacy thrives even to this day. According to the U.S. Justice Department, hate crimes have been going up each year for the past few years. The top motivators are race and ethnicity, religion, and sexual orientation. And that's out of the law enforcement agencies that report hate crimes to the DOJ, since reporting is voluntary. And according to the New York Times, hate crimes are underreported because victims often don't trust that reporting these crimes will help them. In research by the Southern Poverty Law Center, as well as the Center for Strategic and International Studies, both find that the majority of terror attacks in the United States are right-wing terror attacks, by far. Right-wing terrorism is also on the rise globally, according to U.S. News & World Report. And many of these white supremacists killing people are not baby boomers who lived during Jim Crow. We're talking teens and young adults who were radicalized into white supremacist ideology and then took lives, such as Dylan Roof, Alex Fields, Nicholas Cruz, and others. But on the other hand, consider this, quote, Reference is made to a letter by Reverend Ralph C. Brady, published in this column on March 31st. The letter was a strong denunciation of Dr. Martin Luther King, which began, quote, Martin Luther King, I cannot in honesty call him reverend or doctor, etc. End quote. One's own personal opinion, in honesty, as Reverend Brady puts it, is of no consequence in the matter. The facts of the case are, one, that Reverend Martin Luther King is an ordained Baptist minister, just as Reverend Brady is, the color of his skin or the manner in which he carries out his ministerial duties notwithstanding, He is a graduate of Chester, Pennsylvania in 1961 and won an award as the outstanding student of his class. Two, Dr. Martin Luther King received his PhD degree from Boston University in 1955. To refuse to recognize this fact does not reflect on Boston University, but rather it reflects on the so-called honesty of the person who refuses to recognize it. I think it unfortunate that people's emotions become so involved with their intellect that even their sense of honesty becomes twisted. It would seem to me that as a minister of the gospel, Reverend Brady would be among those who accord to each human being the dignity of a title he has earned by hard work, whether he likes or approves of him or not. End quote. This is from a letter to the editor published in the Clarion Ledger of Jackson, Mississippi in 1965. Think about this one too. Quote, When Martin Luther King was in Birmingham, he wanted decent treatment for Negroes on buses, decent service for Negroes at hamburger stands. He was a courageous American. In Chicago last summer, he wanted equal housing and equal job opportunities. Many of his white supporters abandoned him. 
How that he speaks as one of the leaders of a potent political force, which calls into question the social structure and value system of this country. He is unctuous and sonorous. He and other Negroes contribute viable ideas about the future of America, and you call him Olympian. The expression you grope for is uppity. Reverend Mr. King does more than demand the right to live as a human being. He and the entire civil rights movement pose the question of whether we as a society will continue to concern ourselves with the production and consumption of things, or whether we will make ours a society in which men are free to develop their talents and creative powers. There is no Negro problem in America. The color of the problem is white." End quote. This was a letter to the editor printed in the Cincinnati Enquirer in 1967, submitted by 204 students and a number of faculty members from St. Xavier High School, known locally as St. X. Just as we had white supremacists in the past and white supremacists now, there were white allies then, as there are now. Chalking up the racism of older Americans to the time period is giving them an out that doesn't match up to reality. And as those letters demonstrated, there were white people who were willing to speak up then without prejudice, as there are now. And not only that, there are white people who gave up their lives for the cause such as Viola Liuso, a mother of five from Detroit who is reported to be the only white woman killed in the civil rights movement, or Andrew Goodman and Michael Schwerner, white civil rights workers from New York who were killed near a small Mississippi town alongside black civil rights worker James Cheney, who was local to the area, or Reverend James Reeb, a Unitarian minister from Philadelphia who was a member of SCLC and was beaten and killed by white supremacists in Selma, Alabama. In each era of history, there is always an opportunity to make a difference, to either go with evil or with good. During slavery, there were abolitionists. During Jim Crow, there were integrationists. There were allies involved in pretty much every movement you can point to that sought to advance the rights of oppressed groups in the United States. And not all allies ran and joined an organization or participated in a protest or were murdered for the cause. Many simply made a difference where they were, whether it was exposing their children to people of different cultures or treating the races equitably in their businesses or speaking up at the dinner table or in the local paper. The danger of excusing past generations for racism or other forms of bigotry doesn't even have to do with your Uncle Joe or your Nana or any of our ancestors. It has to do with us. When we prescribe the time what can be more properly attributed to character, we are less likely to see the opportunities we have now to be good people and proper allies. And we think we're better people simply because we live in a different time. And then we pat ourselves on the back and say that if we lived in the 1950s and 60s, we would support civil rights for black Americans, we'd stand up for Rosa Parks, and we'd march with Dr. King. But you know what you would have really done back then? The same thing you're doing now. Now that we know that Martin Luther King Jr. was much more complex and more radical than mainstream society gives him credit for, and our society isn't as progressive as we would like to imagine, how did Dr. King go from a communist sympathizer, an outside agitator, to a colorblind, unifying visionary whose message can be molded like Plato to fit any political agenda? 
It's a mixture of time and willful misremembering, mostly the latter. Death has a way of transforming people. In death, you're no longer in charge of your own narrative. The push to create a national holiday for Dr. King started right after his assassination in 1968. Congressional Representative John Conyers of Michigan introduced the first motion to make Dr. King's birthday a federal holiday with support from King's family four days after his death. But it wasn't until 1979 that it first came up for a vote in the House. This vote was unsuccessful. Pressure was exerted from the King Center, including a march on Washington that drew half a million participants. And there was pressure from celebrities, including Stevie Wonder. In 1983, the House passed the bill by 53 votes. The Senate consideration of the bill was more contentious, including a filibuster by Senator Jesse Helms of North Carolina due to accusations that Dr. King was a communist and a 400-page manifesto to go along with it. But the Senate ended up passing the bill by 12 votes, and President Ronald Reagan signed it into law reluctantly, reversing earlier opposition to the holiday. Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King's birthday would be celebrated the third Monday in January and would be a paid federal holiday, which first went into effect in 1986. And it was after that point that Dr. King's message became willfully and methodically distorted. Ronald Reagan, as president, began the work of tearing down civil rights legislation, including affirmative action and court-ordered student busing. These were not unprecedented actions from him. He publicly opposed the Civil Rights Act of 1964 and the Voting Rights Act of 1965. And his actions in the 1980s were a continuation of the attacks on civil rights he made while governor of California, like defending the nullification of California's fair housing law in 1964. When changing his mind on the King holiday, he explained in a letter to New Hampshire's governor that the holiday was based, quote, on an image, not reality, end quote. But now, with having signed the King holiday into law, Reagan felt free to invoke a version of Dr. King, warping the content of one's character into an ideal of colorblindness, an ideology that could be used to justify the rolling back of civil rights protections. In a piece from the Boston Review about Reagan's commitment to civil rights rollbacks, Justin Gomer and Christopher Petrella argue, quote, ultimately Reagan's rendition of King as committed, first and foremost, to a colorblind society and therefore opposed to any and all race-conscious remedies to racial injustice, a framework that Trump seems to have adopted, has proven essential to the rising influence of colorblind ideology. As a public figure of official and white memorialization, King has become the de facto patron saint of colorblind ideology. His historical memory and his radical political critique be damned. End quote. It's hard to argue with someone like the rehabilitated King getting a holiday. Ah, uh, except that it took a long time for all states to recognize the holiday, with Arizona, New Hampshire, Virginia, Utah, and South Carolina being the last holdouts to fully recognize the observance of Dr. King's birthday as a paid state government holiday. And two states, Mississippi and Alabama, 
commemorate Dr. King's birthday as a joint holiday alongside Confederate General Robert E. Lee. In any case, as a radical Black agitator and communist sympathizer, Dr. King had no chance of getting a holiday. But as a colorblind civic prophet who died for a noble cause, he sure did. Reagan's actions in constructing a colorblind king were calculated and deliberate. In Reagan's king, we now had the hero that everyone loved, whose memory was being used to rationalize actions the real-life man would have never supported. As a student of history, I believe it's important to get the real story instead of the distorted one, or at least as much so as we can. But I think most importantly, when it comes to Dr. King, is this. Humans tend to like what's comfortable in the moment, and it's easier to make our history and the leaders that emerge in that history easy and relatable rather than complicated and hard. But that is why, in a number of respects, 2019 isn't that much different than the late 1960s. There hasn't been that reckoning. Right after apartheid ended in South Africa in the 1990s, the South African government under the African National Congress, or ANC, the party of the late Nelson Mandela, set up the Truth and Reconciliation Commission for the sake of restorative justice. Restorative justice is an approach taken to address human rights violations through mediation. And the goal is to help the offender truly understand why their actions were harmful and work out a resolution that provides closure for all involved. This is as opposed to retributive justice, such as in the case of the Nuremberg trials after World War II that focused on punishment for Nazi officers. In the case of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, restorative justice meant testimony from members of the black population who had been affected by apartheid, as well as whites who enforced the policy and profited off of it in exchange for amnesty consideration. Having such a commission meant sorting out the real history of apartheid, including the hard stuff that the whites who had ruled for decades would find difficult to accept. While it was not focused on retribution, the Truth and Reconciliation Commission was aimed at a different type of healing for the country, one where understanding and future change was the goal instead of simply punishment. Going forward, it didn't make South Africa perfect by any stretch, but the Truth Commission was helpful for the country to move forward towards full democratic rule and it was a first step to healing as a country. In the United States, we never addressed the idea of justice at the conclusion of Jim Crow segregation. There was never a forum where those who lived under the system could share how they were victimized by it, or where those who perpetrated what can only be described as human rights violations against a specific subset of the population would answer for their crimes. We never had anything like a Truth and Reconciliation Commission in the U.S. Unlike South Africa, where the end of apartheid and the start of democracy meant a shift in power towards the numerical majority, who were black, in the U.S., white Americans are the numerical majority, so leaving Jim Crow behind didn't change the power structure. Yes, laws were changed and other laws were enacted that were aimed at ensuring racial equality in a legal sense. 
but we never really dealt with the racism entrenched in American culture and the human cost of that racism. Racism that our country was built on and our institutions have been steeped in, from law enforcement and the criminal justice system to our neighborhoods of residence, schools of learning, and houses of worship, to capitalism itself. And the end of Jim Crow created a space that those like Ronald Reagan could use to fashion a hero out of whole cloth while destroying the essence of what Dr. King stood for. Many white Americans have adopted Martin Luther King Jr. as a hero because the whitewashed King has enabled them to claim they are not racist without having to examine their beliefs and actions. Colorblindness as an ideology doesn't provide a place mentally to see and deal honestly with how race has mattered and continues to matter in the United States beyond opposition to a small, ever-eroding patchwork of programs that aim to even the playing field just a tiny bit using the dubious label reverse racism. In the push to be colorblind, instead of advancing a world of racial peace and harmony, those who adopt it become tools of furthering white supremacy. As Americans, we have never dealt with racism honestly, and because racism and the atrocities that come from it were never aired out, these were never addressed, and these were never truly added to a comprehensive historical record, it is easy for many to just simply tell black Americans, you're the real racists because you're holding on to the past, conveniently forgetting that this reality wasn't all that long ago and in some respects has never ended. Dr. King is used as America's redemption. Through him, the decades and centuries of America's original sin of racism and its effects are washed away and those who are responsible and those who benefit from this sin, their guilt and shame can be washed away. Dr. King gets a day every year because he is placed in the role of America's savior and everything is forgiven and forgotten. Racism has been washed away. Race itself has been washed away by the blood of Martin Luther King Jr. The problem is that Dr. King was never meant to play that role. There is no contemporary evidence that he even wanted that role. Instead of our country, our society, our government, our institutions doing the heavy lifting and the hard work of confronting the truth and seeking justice of any kind, even the restorative justice that places truth over retribution, instead, America sought out and claimed cheap grace. The backlash of conservative white Americans over President Obama and the empowerment they feel now by embracing Trump's racism without owning the consequences and fallout is a result of cheap grace. Martin Luther King Jr., as did many, many other people, stood up and held a mirror to our society, and it made him controversial in his time. And that's the part that hasn't changed. The way our society often demonizes the activists of our time, from Colin Kaepernick and Eric Reed to Toronto Burke to Nathan Phillips, even Jesse Jackson and Al Sharpton, is not that much different than how society saw Martin Luther King Jr., as well as Malcolm X, Angela Davis, Stokely Carmichael, Huey Newton, in their time. Because it's like the saying goes, when you're accustomed to privilege, equality feels like oppression. It's my hope that if we can tell the truth about our history, we can see how 
we're not that much different than those who came before us. And we can use the decades and centuries of hindsight to create a better present and a brighter future for all people. It's a great exercise to examine things in depth. History, politics, art, music, life. It expands our mind and spirit. Our super talented content creators at Flying Machine do just that in the Flying Machine blog. Right now, Ryan Lynch from Divisive Issues has been writing excellent critical blog pieces on albums by some great artists from the past and present. Ryan's most recent series is about the alternative rock band Say Anything. I hadn't actually heard of the band, even though I enjoy alternative and indie rock, but Ryan's blog entries put me up on them, and now Say Anything has been added to my music rotation. So check out the Flying Machine blog for contributions from Ryan and our other Flying Machine creators, flyingmachine.network slash blog. Thank you very much for listening to Potstirer Podcast. If you enjoyed the podcast, subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or on your favorite podcast app. Go to potstirerpodcast.com slash download and you'll see the links. If you subscribe, you can get new episodes once they come out so you don't miss out. If you enjoyed the podcast, please give us five stars and leave a review. That encourages other people to find and listen to it also. And follow me on Twitter at PotstirrerCast. I'm Jay Poole. Let's fight for America's future because freedom is not free. I give you the incredible flying machine.